Good morning. I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 27. Genesis chapter 27, I'm going to begin reading at verse 41. Holy Scripture says, Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. This is the word of God. It is for our good. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would send forth your word and let there be light shining brightly in our hearts. Purify our hearts. Make us holy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week, we walked through Genesis chapter 26, verse 34, through chapter 27, verse 40, and really, uh, the, the stretch of verses that runs from Genesis 26, 34, all the way to chapter 28, verse 9, it really stands together as a single unit, 
At the beginning of that unit, we learn about Esau's wives, the two Hittite women that he married. And at the end of the unit, we learn about Esau's third wife, uh, the, the Ishmaelite woman that he married. And so the whole, the whole unit is framed by Esau's marriages. In contrast to that, Jacob is specifically directed not to marry one of the Canaanite women as Esau did, but instead to take a wife from within his extended family. In chapter 27, Isaac blessed Jacob in the dark, you could say, uh, under, under, uh, under a cloud of deception and misinformation. But in chapter 28, Isaac blesses Jacob in the light with eyes wide open, knowing exactly what he is doing. And as we go through these, these verses, we continue to see a contrast between Esau and Jacob. Esau is the wayward son desperately seeking the blessing of his father, but he's unable to find it. Jacob, despite his flaws, is the blessed son who walks in obedience to his father and his mother. At, at the end of the passage that we looked at last week, uh, Esau was seeking the blessing with tears, but to no avail. Jacob had successfully received the blessing, and uh, Isaac had spoken words to Esau that he would be exiled and exist in servitude under the lordship of his brother. And so it's not surprising, given that, that Esau began to seethe with hatred for Jacob over the blessing that had seemed to be almost within reach, but now it was forever out of reach. So, that brings us to today's passage, and it unfolds in five parts. So first, Esau hates Jacob and plans to kill him in verse 41. One commentator called attention to the fact that the Esau and Jacob dynamic bears some resemblance to the Cain and Abel dynamic. In both cases, uh, in both cases there's an older brother who resents and hates his younger blessed brother. In Cain's case, he proceeded to actually kill Abel. In Esau's case, he had enough respect for his father to not attempt to kill Jacob until after his father had died. Remember, we had learned at the beginning of chapter 27 that Isaac thought that his death was imminent, that he could die at any time, and evidently Esau also believed that his father could die at any time, so he didn't expect it to be decades, but in fact, Isaac lived for a few more decades, and his death is not recorded for us until Genesis chapter 35. He died at the age of 180. Although from a human perspective, we can understand Esau's resentment in response to Jacob's trickery, nevertheless, from a big picture spiritual perspective, Esau's hatred of Jacob is another expression of his refusal to align himself with God's plan. To hate your brother who has your father's blessing is an act of dishonor to your father. And that's the very same thing we will see many years later in the case of Jacob's ten sons who despise and hate Joseph 
the blessed son. Joseph's brothers hated Joseph. Cain hated, Cain hated Abel. Esau hated Jacob. And Esau's uh, hatred of Jacob puts him at odd with the Lord who loved Jacob, as we learn later in Malachi 1, verse 2. If you hate someone that the Lord has set his special approval and covenant love upon, then you are showing yourself to be an enemy of God. Esau's hatred of Jacob also puts him outside the scope of the blessing that God promised to give through Jacob. Remember chapter 27, verse 29. Cursed be everyone who curses you. This is the blessing spoken to Jacob. And blessed be everyone who, blessed, who, who, uh, who blesses you. And so a cursedness will remain on Esau as long as he is opposed to Jacob. Now, what I have just said, these may come across as harsh words about Esau, who has just been treated unjustly by his brother. But Esau's real problem wasn't that Jacob took away his blessing, for God had intended to give the blessing to Jacob all along. Esau's real problem is that he wanted outward blessings without, while, while being an inward rebel. <laughs> if only he could be healed of his inward rebellion, then he could be reconciled to God and he could be rightly related to the God who had promised to give blessing through his brother Jacob. Some of you are likely to run into the same problem that Esau had. You'll be getting discontent about how God is running the world and how you seem to be getting the short end of the stick. When in reality, the problem is that you want outward blessings without inward obedience. You want $10,000 worth of fun without a costly faith. You want riches without taking responsibility for the things that God has assigned to you. You want, you want success without sacrifice. You want to land the benefits without laying down your life. And if you are like Esau, you will al always locate your problem in the wrong place. You point the finger at something else or at someone else like Jacob. You point the finger at Jacob when in reality you should take a good look in the mirror and be horrified at the irreverent sinner that you have become. Esau doesn't have a problem with his brother so much as he has a problem with God. And some of you might be in the same boat. Take to heart the words that Jesus spoke to the Laodiceans who thought that they were good to go because they had outward prosperity. But what did Jesus say to them? He said this in Revelation chapter 3, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Seek first the riches of God's grace and hold everything else with an open hand. 
Second, moving to verses 42 to 45, Rebekah learns about Esau's plan and instructs Jacob to flee. One of the things that we're learning about Rebekah is that she is a very resourceful listener. When, 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 uh, when Jacob and Esau were in the womb duking it out, she inquired of the Lord, and the Lord spoke to her, and she successfully heard and understood what the Lord had said. In chapter 27, when uh, Isaac had given instructions to Esau to go and get the animals and make the meal and come and you're going to get blessed, Rebekah was listening, and that set in motion her scheme to get Jacob the blessing. And even here, though she didn't hear Esau's words directly, somebody heard them, and somebody reported them to Rebekah, and that set in motion her plan to protect Jacob. So Rebekah informs Jacob of Esau's plans, tells Jacob to obey her voice, and instructs him to rise and flee to her hometown, Haran, several hundred miles to the north, and to stay with her brother Laban. How long should Jacob stay with Laban? Well, verse 44 says, a while. The idea is for Jacob to stay with Laban a short time uh, for a few days, as some of your translations might accurately put it, but in fact, Jacob's visit to Laban will last 20 years. <laughs> be careful what you intend to be done for only a few days, for you might blink and learn that two decades have passed. In any case, Rebecca's purpose for her son's temporary relocation plan is to allow the passage of time to cool down Esau's hot anger until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him, then I will send and bring you from there. Rebecca assumes a very assertive, protective, and directive role for, for Jacob. And remember, this is not a young Rebecca watching over her 15-year-old son. Okay, Rebecca is over 100 years old. Jacob is over 70 years old. And yet, even in her old age, she is earnest and shrewd and prudent and focused to protect her son. By the way, as it turns out, as I already mentioned, Rebecca's plan for Jacob's temporary relocation takes on a life of its own. And Jacob spends two decades with Laban. And as far as we know, Rebecca never recalls Jacob back home. It's only the suffering that Jacob is facing under his uncle Laban that thrusts him out of Haran and brings him back home. Obviously, Rebecca is concerned not only to save her son, but also to minimize her own grief. As she says at the end of verse 45, why should I be bereft of you both in one day? I had initially understood that a different way, but uh, uh, most of the commentaries that I consulted uh, take Rebecca's statement about bereavement to mean something like this. When the day comes that Esau murders Jacob, then on that very day, Jacob will be dead, 
and Esau will be an outlaw murderer subject to capital punishment, and thereby she will have effectively lost both of her sons. And she doesn't want that to happen, so she bids Jacob to go. Now, as we leave verse 45, Jacob is under orders from his mother to flee to Haran. But Rebekah does not want to leave it at that. She also wants Jacob to be under orders from his father to go to Haran. But that is a tricky situation to navigate. And so let's move on to the third point. Third, Isaac blesses Jacob in the light, instructs him concerning marriage, and sends him away to Rebekah's extended family in Padan Aram, which is the area where the town of Haran was located. Now, we'll get to Isaac's words to Jacob in just a moment, but first, Rebekah speaks to Isaac. I'm not sure if there's any other recorded words of Rebekah to Isaac in Genesis. Um, these, these, are, these are very important words. It's unfortunate, by the way, that those who assign to the Bible chapters and verses put a chapter break after verse 46 because verse 46 is evidently the beginning of a flow of thought that continues into chapter 28. First, Rebekah speaks to Isaac about Jacob not marrying a Hittite woman in verse 46, and then Isaac speaks, speaks to Jacob about it in verses 1 to 4 of the next chapter. Rebekah's words to Isaac are recorded in verse 46. I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Rebekah's words hearken back to the end of the previous chapter, the end of chapter 26, when we learned that Esau married two Hittite women and that Esau's two Hittite wives made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah in chapter 26, verse 35. And so Isaac and Rebekah were of the same mind in their disapproval of Esau's wives. And Rebekah felt so strongly about it that she felt that her life would devolve into meaninglessness if Jacob married a Hittite woman. As I mentioned last week, Isaac and Rebekah wanted their sons to follow in the footsteps of Abraham and Isaac, which meant taking a wife from within your own extended kinship group. Abraham married Sarai, his half-sister. Isaac had married Rebekah, his first cousin once removed. And Esau had not followed suit, but Rebekah was urgent with Isaac about how important it was for Jacob to get it right. Now, it's very interesting that the text doesn't report any words of Rebekah to Isaac about Esau's plan to kill Jacob. No, notice the flow of thought here. In verses 41 to 45, Rebekah's reason for sending Jacob to Haran is to protect Jacob from Esau's murderous plan. In chapter 28, Isaac's reason for sending Jacob to the same place, to Haran, to Padanaram, is to find a suitable wife. 
Rebecca has one reason, Isaac has a different reason, and what's in between those two things? It's Rebecca's comments to Isaac in verse 46. And I, and I suspect that what's going on is something like this. Rebecca does not want to bring up Esau's murderous plan with Isaac. That's an unpleasant subject. But she wants Isaac to send, uh, to send Jacob to Haran. But Isaac needs a reason to send, to send Jacob to Haran, and so Rebecca supplies the reason. And it's a legitimate reason. Jacob must not marry a woman from the land of Canaan. There's no dishonesty here. Isaac and Rebekah both want Jacob to find a wife from among their extended family in Haran, and it just so happens that Rebekah also wants Jacob to go to Haran in order to save his life. But she is remiss to speak with Isaac about such a painful subject. After all, if you had been the initiator behind a plan in which the younger son deceives his father to take away the blessing from the older son that the father had intended to bless, and now the, the older son wants to kill the younger son, you would not want to bring that up either. And by the way, uh, you think your family has problems. I mean, family politics, palace intrigue, messy home life, trying to navigate tricky situations. That's what we see here. And yet God's grace is upon this family. And what follows in the opening verses of chapter 28 is of great importance. When Isaac blessed Jacob in chapter 27, the whole thing was done within an atmosphere of deception and misinformation. It would do this father and son... Isaac and Jacob, much good if Isaac could bless Jacob a second time with eyes wide open without any misinformation, confusion, or deceit. And this is what we get in chapter 28. First, Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, and this is in contrast to the beginning of chapter 27. What happens at the beginning of chapter 27? Esau, I'm sorry, Isaac called Esau and directed him, and of course ended up blessing Jacob who was pretending to be Esau. But that's all now in the past. And in the present moment, Isaac calls Jacob, Isaac calls the right son, and blesses the same and gives practical direction. Once again, Isaac is following in the footsteps of his father Abraham. Back in chapter 24, Abraham gave direction to one of his household servants to find a wife for Isaac from among their extended family and to not take a wife for Isaac from among the Canaanites. Perhaps, as one commentator suggested, Isaac should have taken initiative on this many years ago before Jacob was in his 70s. But it took Isaac a long time to come around to embracing Jacob as the covenant son. But now Isaac does well in instructing Jacob in verse 2. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Do you remember the extended family relationships? Abraham had a brother named Nahor. 
Abraham fathered Isaac, and Nahor fathered Bethuel, and so Isaac and Bethuel were first cousins, and Bethuel fathered Laban and Rebekah, and Isaac married Rebekah, and now Rebekah had Jacob and Esau, and Laban had daughters Rachel and Leah, who will become Jacob's wives. Although, although Isaac, I, Isaac instructs Jacob to take, to take one daughter of Laban for his wife, not two, but that's another story. After instructing Jacob to go and find a, a, a wife in the house of his relatives, Isaac blesses Jacob with a blessing that reflects both creational and covenantal blessings. The first words of blessing, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply. What does that remind you of? Genesis 1.28, what God said to the first man and the first woman, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. For believers, creational and covenantal blessings are interconnected. God's covenantal blessing upon Abraham meant blessing upon Abraham's marriage and upon Abraham's offspring. God's covenantal blessing upon Isaac meant blessing upon Isaac's marriage and upon Isaac's offspring. And now God's covenantal blessing upon Jacob means blessing upon Jacob's marriage and upon Jacob's offspring. Believers who live in the good of God's spiritual promises, believers are not helicoptered out of this present world. Even as believers, we, we live our lives anchored in God's good creation, in marriage and in family life, and God works through these creational blessings in order to accomplish His redemptive purposes. Thus the Lord had promised to Isaac in chapter 26, verse 4, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. God works through marriage, through procreation, through parenting, through offspring, one generation after another in order to accomplish His redemptive purpose to make the good news of the gospel known to the ends of the earth. After reflecting the creational blessing in the first part of verse 3, Isaac segues into one of God's big redemptive purposes that he is pursuing through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to make a great nation. The Lord had told Abraham, and I will make of you a great nation, Genesis 12, 2. Now Isaac echoes that earlier promise and blesses Jacob saying that you may become a company an assembly, a congregation of peoples. The result of the fruitfulness and multiplication is becoming a great nation, a company of peoples that mediates the blessing of God to the whole world. Then in verse 4, Isaac deliberately references Abraham, thus showing very clearly that Jacob is the appointed steward of the Abrahamic covenant. May God Almighty give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. The blessing-filled covenant that God made with Abraham will overtake 
Jacob and Jacob's offspring, and in due course, they will possess the land that God promised to Abraham. The very fact that Isaac is blessing Jacob in these verses shows us that Isaac is a man of faith, and I think it's very important for us to see this. He almost acted very stupidly in chapter 27 by blessing the wrong son or intending to bless the wrong son. Isaac loved Esau, chapter 25, verse 28, and he had intended to bless Esau, but after deceit turned his head on its plan and the blessing went to Jacob, did you notice that Isaac doesn't protest? Not for a single moment. Isaac didn't take up Esau's cause. Isaac didn't hold a grudge against Jacob. Ironically, it is through Rebekah's and Jacob's deceitful scheme in chapter 27, it is through that deceptive scheme that Isaac came to see clearly that Jacob is the blessed son. And now, seeing it, he doesn't turn back. Isaac immediately recognized and embraced the truth that Jacob now possessed God's blessing and that Esau didn't. Thus, Esau walks in faith as we read in Hebrews chapter 12, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 11, which says this. It's remarkable when you consider the background in Genesis 27 and 28. In Hebrews 11, it says, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau by faith. Of course, the lion's share of blessing went to Jacob. Esau got some consolation prizes, like he was granted life, albeit by the sword, and he was also promised that he would eventually break free from his brother's rule. But the point I want to draw attention to is the fact that Isaac pronounced these blessings by faith as a man who rightly perceived the future contours of God's plan. And Isaac's Isaac's words of blessing to Jacob in verses 3 and 4 are so fitting. First, it lifts the cloud of suspicion that hangs over the blessing of chapter 27 due to the dubious circumstances in which Jacob had received the earlier blessing. Now, Isaac and Jacob have stepped into the light and the transmission of blessing is clean. Second, Isaac is, in effect, blessing Jacob's anticipated marriage. Isaac will not be present when Jacob marries the daughter of Laban, so don't miss the fact that Isaac's blessing, that God Almighty bless him and his offspring and multiply him, is spoken immediately after the command to go, essentially leave your father and mother, and be united to your wife. Isaac's fatherly blessing rests upon his son's impending marriage. Third, even as Isaac is sending Jacob away from the promised land in order to find a wife, he assures Jacob that Jacob and his offspring will eventually possess the land. Don't fail to grasp the lesson. Temporary dislocations from the place of promise are only necessary detours that lead back to the place of promise. You'll see this over and over again throughout the Scriptures. We tend not to like dislocations, interruptions, 
detours, zigzags, and delays. And the thing is, for those who don't know and trust the Lord, the dislocations, interruptions, detours, zigzags, and delays easily become a source of frustration and resentment. But for those who know and trust the Lord, God's blessing rests upon us even in the midst of our sufferings and trials. Isaac, for good reason, sent Jacob away, but not away from God's blessing. Many years later, Joseph's brothers, for a bad reason, will send Joseph away, but they could not send Joseph away from the blessing of God. The Lord is with His people wherever they go. I will never leave you nor forsake you, says the Lord. Verse 5 begins, thus Isaac sent Jacob away. Isaac sent Jacob away with, with his blessing, with the blessing of Abraham, and most importantly, with the blessing of the Lord Almighty. Isaac blessed Jacob in the light. The cloud of suspicion is lifted, and the future is bright. Fourth, Moving to the rest of verse 5, Jacob follows his father's direction. This is not insignificant. It's possible to send, but for the sent person not to go. God sent Jonah to Nineveh, and Jonah didn't go. It's also possible to go without being sent. God rebuked the false prophets because they had gone forth to speak in the name of the Lord, but God had not sent them. God had not spoken to them. Happily, there are also times when a proper sending is followed by an obedient going, and that's what happens here. Isaac sent Jacob, and Jacob went. And in so doing, Jacob proves faithful where Esau proves unfaithful. Esau's whole problem is that he deviates from the family's faith in the Lord and from the family's mission. By contrast, Jacob proves to be a faithful son, a loyal member of his family. By the way, just an important note on that, it should be understood that it is not inherently virtuous to be faithful to one's family because if, 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 if the, the legacy of a family is away from the Lord... <laughs> is unbelief and wickedness, then you should break from that. But if your family's legacy is following after the Lord, then blessed are you if you prove faithful to your family's heritage, and cursed are you if you don't. So Isaac sent his son to his people in Haran in order to secure a bride and eventually return to the promised land. And Jacob obeyed. And it just reminds me that one day the Father in heaven sent his son to earth in order to secure a bride and bring her with him to the greater promised land, and Jesus obeyed. At one point, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus is the obedient son who always lived under his father's blessing and direction. And here, in some small way, Jacob, we observe Jacob living under the blessing and instruction of his father, Isaac. Meanwhile, Esau 
is on the outside, observing and processing. And that brings us to the final verses, 6 to 9, where Esau continues in vain to seek his father's blessing. These verses give us a tragic picture of a desperate man. In verses 6 and 7, Esau is observing the grace that is on display between his father and his brother. Isaac had blessed Jacob. This is what Esau is seeing. Isaac had blessed Jacob. Isaac had sent Jacob to Padan Aram to find a wife. Isaac had blessed Jacob as he instructed him not to marry a Canaanite woman. And Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother. Esau sees his hated brother Jacob living under the blessing and guidance of his father. And that is the polar opposite of how Esau has been living. Esau was a wayward man who had sold and despised his birthright and who had married against the desires of his parents. Esau is not living under the blessing and guidance of his father. Just days earlier, he had sought his father's blessing with tears. Bless me, even me also, O my father. Genesis 27, verse 34. But he was unable to find it. Isaac told Esau that Esau would dwell away from the fatness of the earth and away from the dew of heaven. And so as Esau is contemplating these things, he attempts to fix the problem by taking a more suitable wife. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Isaac had instructed Jacob to marry from within the extended family unit, and now Esau reasons that since his Canaanite wives did not please his father, if he married a woman from within his extended family, family unit, then that would please his father and perhaps put him into a place where he could receive blessing from his father. So Ishmael, that's extended family, Ishmael is Abraham's son, Ishmael is Esau's uncle, and Ishmael's daughter Mahalath fits the bill, is Esau's first cousin, and Esau takes her as his third wife. But don't miss the obvious. The assessment of Esau has not changed. Esau's addition of a third wife doesn't change the fact that he continues to live apart from his father's blessing and guidance. Isaac had directed Jacob where to go to obtain a wife, and Jacob had went. But Jacob had gone from a place of blessing and under his father's direction. In verses 6 to 9, there is no indication that Isaac had instructed Esau to add an Ishmaelite wife to his household, and thus Esau went on his own, not acting under his father's direction and not acting from a place of blessing. External actions never suffice for finding true blessing. There is a, a hymn in which we sing the words, Early let us turn to thee. Early let us seek thy favor. Early let us do thy will. But those who refuse to do that, like Esau, will often resort to pathetic, patch-up efforts later in life to no avail. I want to call your attention to two important lessons from this passage. Here's the first lesson. The first lesson, 
draws right upon verses 6 to 9 that we've just been looking at. External adjustments are no substitute for heartfelt repentance. What Esau does in verses 6 to 9 is a common temptation for human beings. In fact, it is such a common temptation that it is probable that most of you, if not all of you, have faced and will continue to face this sort of temptation. Okay? Here's how the temptation works. We perceive that we are outsiders to the dynamic of grace that is at work in another person's life, and yet we see that this other person is blessed and that this other person is doing things a certain way, and then we figure that if we would only mimic what the blessed person is doing, then we will be blessed too. In Esau's case, he, what he is mimicking is the act of marrying a wife from within his extended family unit. But this common temptation works in dozens of ways, on dozens of pieces of material. Those other people are blessed, and they fill in the blank. They, they have a lot of kids. They homeschool. They eat organic. They read through the Bible every year. They listen to John Piper sermons. They journal. That's it. That's the key. They read Wendell Berry novels. They don't listen to legacy media but prefer alternative news sources. They have adopted a classical education model. They have a special family night every week. Whenever the church doors are open, they're there. They listen to the briefing podcast. That would be me. And then, with an Esau-like spirit, with an Esau-like spirit, which desires the blessing without inward repentance, the graceless heart seeks to obtain blessing by mimicking those external activities. But it doesn't work. Without true blessing already poured out on you, without God's grace overwhelming you, without genuine faith present in your heart, Without inward repentance, all the external mimicry, all the external actions, all the outward strategies are like putting a tuxedo on a pig. And you know what pigs do, right? And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Second Peter 2, 22 just a temporary outward change, no inward change. Don't settle for the mimicry, but get solid grace for yourself from the one place where that grace flows freely, namely from the cross, where rebellious sinners can be put back together again. Apart from the cross, all of your striving is in vain. And if you say, Man, I'm really messed up. What am I supposed to do? I reply by leading us into the second lesson, which is that God bestows his grace on flawed people. That's the second lesson. God bestows his grace upon flawed people. If, if, if your picture of God's redeemed people is that their lives are squeaky clean from start to finish, 
Well, that, that picture is, is just flatly inaccurate. Should we be diligent to obey the Lord? Yes. Should we be earnest to pursue holiness? Yes. Should we exercise ourselves unto godliness? Yes. We must be clear on the goal of holy living, just as we sang about, and set our minds squarely on it as the purpose and aim in life. But we need to come to grips with the fact that from time to time, we really blow it. We have and we will. Peter and Barnabas blew it when they acted hypocritically in their dealing with the Gentiles in Antioch. David blew it. In Genesis chapter 27, Jacob deceived his father in order to get the blessing. And yet, the rest of Genesis 27 and chapter 28 make clear that Jacob has a clear title to the blessing anyway. And someone will say, that's not fair. But that's just the thing about grace. Grace is unmerited favor. And as one pastor described mercy, mercy is demerited favor. It's not just that we don't merit it. It's that we've actually demerited ourselves through all kinds of disobedience. It's not just that sinful human beings haven't done anything to merit salvation, but that we've actually done many things to merit damnation. But Jacob is blessed anyway, not because Jacob deserves it, but because God is determined to bless him. The Lord loves Jacob not because Jacob has unflawed loveliness, but because the Lord is resolved to love him and extend his promises through him. And as we consider Genesis 27 and 28, we get an indirect picture of how the Lord covers our guilt and shame. Think about it. It is manifestly obvious that Jacob sins grievously when he deceives his father. But with that in mind, ponder this observation from Arnold Fruchtenbaum, a commentator that I've quoted, on, quoted from off and on during this sermon series. Listen very carefully to what he says. Quote, God himself never condemns Jacob. When God speaks to Jacob in upcoming passages, it is always a message of blessing and of promise and never a rebuke and never a word of chastisement. The Lord is gracious and kind to His undeserving people. The Lord clothed Adam and Eve with garments of skin in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. And several chapters later, reflecting that grace, Noah's two oldest sons covered the shame of their father. It covered him with grace. As we looked at the life of Abraham, Abraham played the fool more than once. The Lord never condemned him. And here in Genesis 27, Jacob is the one who had acted sinfully, but the Lord does not condemn him. In his great and steadfast love, the Lord covers the multitude of our sins. And so I say to you, dear and flawed saints, do not despair. The Lord justifies the ungodly who trust Him, and He blesses us though our 
feet are unsteady. Lean on Him and let His grace sustain your weary soul. And, and that, that grace of God that He pours out on His people must find a harmonious echo in our relationships with each other as the Apostle Peter instructs, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for holding forth your servant Jacob as a model of what it looks like for a sinner to receive grace. I also thank you for holding forth Esau as an example to avoid and to learn from. Father, I pray for each and every one in here that we would hold fast to your grace. Always walk in your ways. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.